There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Greg, it's the third different inflection I've done at the beginning of our episode. This is exciting. I can hardly wait to see what's going to happen. Yes, but in all seriousness, welcome back, Greg and Colin, myself, and all of our listeners to the Free Lunch Podcast, where last week we discussed the silent killers. Greg, those were fees, expenses, and taxes. Exactly. And they can be killers. They can be killers on return, and it's just important that you understand which ones are real and which ones aren't and which ones to focus on. So I would encourage anybody who's interested, go back and listen to that episode. But today, we're going to wrap up our mini-series on Back to Basics of Investing. Anyways, here we are though today talking about something different. We're talking about headlines, dividends, and cycles. And we've touched on all of these, of course, in previous episodes, but the purpose of this mini-series is to highlight the back to basics. And what better time to talk about headlines than perhaps right now? There's headlines everywhere, Greg. Exactly. So back in episode 12, we discussed how headlines are really what we call entertainment advice. So they use headlines to generate readership, but don't actually provide any real-world actionable investment advice. We also said headlines hurt hairlines, I think. I knew you'd bring that up. (laughs) It's always back to the hair, isn't it? (laughs) All you haired people. (laughs) Anyway, so the problem is not that these either newspapers or television programs aren't reporting on real-world markets events, because they are reporting on real-world market events, but the language they use basically is intended to evoke an emotional reaction. So let's look at some recent examples. So can you think all the way back to July 19th? Like it was just a few days ago. Exactly. So if you recall, on July 19th, the Dow Jones average dropped 725 points, about 2%. So here's some of the headlines from that day. The Wall Street Journal says, COVID worries ripple through markets. Behind the rout, investors say, is a growing list of concerns about the recovery. Sounds scary. CNBC, the Dow tumbles 700 points for its worst day since October as investors fear a COVID resurgence. And Wall Street Journal again, stocks tumble as Delta variant sends investors back to bonds. And you can tell they use words like rout or tumbles or whatever to really provide that sense that something really bad is really happening. It evokes fear. Exactly. So two days later, just two days after that, the market had recovered everything it lost on the 19th and was in fact up almost 100 points from the day prior to the apparent rout. And here's the headlines. Delta variant isn't expected to dent the robust U.S. economy. Wait a minute. Who, who wrote that? That was the Wall Street Journal. But didn't they just say that this ripple through markets, growing list of concerns about recovery, yeah, et cetera? Yep, exactly. So again, it's the key thing isn't reporting on the market action. It's the use of those words that elicit a gut reaction when they read them. That's the stock markets, but the same thing happens in bond markets. And in the case of bonds, it actually can be scarier for investors since most investors are less familiar with bond price movements and some of the factors that affect bond prices. So I went back to February 25th, BNN Bloomberg, 
Their headline, In Bond Route, Strategists Struggle to Keep Up with the Yield Rise. So as you can tell, yields were rising and it's a bond route. I guess bonds were getting killed. Wait, that's two different places that have used the word route. Is this the word of, of it's a route. depression? Exactly. Actually, back on February 17th, so a week earlier, global bonds are suffering the worst start to the year since 2013. Okay, that's a long time. That's eight years. Boy, this must really be bad. And here's a headline from just July 21st. So while the stock market had a route and then recovered in two days, bond yields sink to February lows as growth fears mount. Well, which one is it, Greg? So now all of a sudden, just a few months ago, we were worried that bond yields were rising in response to inflation or rising interest rates, etc. And here we are a few months later and bond yields have sunk back to February lows. So basically between February and July, nothing happened except a lot of people got all concerned about whether it was right to hold bonds and that kind of thing. And actually, we've seen some of those headlines from before that specific to bonds. I think for 10 years, I've read variations of a headline that says something like bond bubble about to burst. Oh, yeah. For 10 straight years. What's happened in that 10 years? There hasn't been a burst of anything. No, and bonds have actually done pretty darn well over the last eight or 10 years, providing security and income to portfolios. But you sort of see how the headlines can cause stress. At the best, they cause a little stress, and at worst, they could encourage investors to take action, such as selling their bonds in February or selling their stocks on July 20th after the stock route. We want to keep in perspective here as well. So on July 19th, the Dow Jones was down 725 points. That was about 2%. Now, if anybody remembers Back in March of 2020, there was this little thing that we like to call the global pandemic. I'm familiar with it. I believe, I don't have the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure that the Dow Jones dropped something like 2,300 points on one day, maybe call it March the 12th or something. And four days later, I think it was down almost 3,000 points. Those are big numbers. In October of 1987, Black Monday, the Dow Jones was down 22%. In one day. In one day. So is a 2% decline a route? I don't think so. Well, let me ask you this. If the market had gone up 2% instead of going down 2%, what would the headline read? Good question. There wouldn't be one. That's right. Well, everyone expects stocks to go up. And so when they go up, and not by a huge amount in percentage terms, but just by 1% or 2%, that's normal day-to-day variation. So I guess the point here is when we talk about headlines hurting hairlines, what we're saying is try to look away from the words and some of the ways that those market actions are presented because they can lead to a sense of fear or anxiety or stress. And in many cases, it's just normal market movements. And these headlines are really just geared towards attracting people into the site, whether it's a website, a television program, or what have you. But don't you find the headlines too, they're the same at multiple sources. So you mentioned in the newspaper or on TV. You're kind of dating yourself here, by Sorry the way. Sorry about that. When I say newspaper, I mean the electronic <laughs> version, of course. Like, who reads the newspaper anymore? And television, I mean, I think a good majority of, not a majority, but a good number of Canadians have actually cut their cable. So where are they getting their feeds from? They're getting them from the internet, perhaps. But have you ever noticed if you go to certain websites, I won't name them, but popular news sites, the headlines are the same at every one of them. So if it's a down day, they're crappy headlines. If it's an up day, they talk about something else. That's right. So then what do people do with that information? And that's the question. It's like generally what happens is 
if it causes enough stress and anxiety, then people will call their advisors and say, boy, do you think we should be holding bonds still? I understand that there's a bond route going on, and this is the worst start to a year in global bonds since 2013. That's what happens, and it causes anxiety, and it's unnecessary. As you know, and as our clients know, we're always happy to discuss what's happening in the markets and why securities behave the way they do, and that's what we'll continue to do. So moving on, in episode 13, we talked about market cycles and the importance of knowing your history. So let's just talk about a couple of the most important cycles we encounter when investing. The first one that everyone hopes for and enjoys, bull markets. So what are bull markets? Well, they're extended periods of rising prices. They can occur in different asset classes at any time. So there's not just bull markets in stocks. You can have bull markets in bonds, in real estate, in commodities, all sorts of things. And typically, when we talk about a bull market, we're talking about an increase of something in the order of 15% or 20%, depending on which one you prefer, from a recent market low. But bull markets can, even though they typically last three to four years, we've just gone through the longest bull market in history. Is it like 12 years? Yeah, it started in 2009 and arguably ended in March of 2020 with the COVID bear market. Although, to be honest, when you look at the progression of the stock market and how short the bull market was, or the bear market was in March of 2020, you might argue that that 35%, even though it's a massive number down, was just a correction because the markets quickly recovered everything they had lost and they're back on track, extending the bull market that started back in 2009. But that number you point out is important, 15 or 20%, because on average, don't stock markets fall 10% at some point during the year, every year? Well, typically, a typical correction is 5 to 10%, and those are expected very regularly. We don't have them as regularly as we used to, but they certainly are expected. So the opposite of a bull market is called a bear market, and technically a bear market occurs when the market declines 20% from the high of the recent year. As it turns out, the average length of a bear market is about 367 days, about a year. And so, as I mentioned, when we're talking about the COVID pandemic bear market, I think that lasted, what, a like couple a of months? a day and a half? <laughs> it felt like a day and a half. <laughs> well, well, wait, though. At the time, it felt like forever. It felt like a lifetime. Yeah, That's right. but actually looking back on it, it was only a couple of months, really. That's right. The interesting thing about bear markets is very often, like, they'll span two calendar years. And so when you look at calendar years, there's not as many, or it doesn't seem like there's as many bear markets. There's lots of negative years, but they're not necessarily horribly negative. Like stocks, again, bonds can also have bear markets or have negative years. Wait, before you get into that, do you know why they're called bull markets and bear markets? Do you know? No, I don't. I just read this recently. It's because a bull, when it's attacking something, it attacks upwards. And a bear, when it's attacking something, it attacks downwards. Interesting. There you go. Wow. You learn something new every day, Greg. That is fantastic. I'm going to go home and tell my family <laughs> about this. So as I mentioned, bonds, of course, can go through cycles and have bear markets and bad years as well. As it turns out, in the case of bonds in Canada, for the Canadian bond index, which is the universe index, there's only been two negative years since 1980. And those two years were 1994 and 2013. So again, even though bonds can have negative years, they just don't get them all that often. Well, how's that compared to the Canadian stock market? Canadian though? stocks, I believe there's been 12 negative years since 1980. So that's like six times as many. That's right. Do you see how I did that? 12 divided by two equals six. I've always been impressed by your math skills. 
<laughs> but I think the thing to keep in mind is just that markets go in cycles and there's bull markets and there are bear markets. Bull markets tend to last longer. I think on average, stocks go up about 67% of the time. So about two thirds of the time stocks go up and they go down about one third of the time. What's the chance of another bear market occurring in the next while? Well, I'm going to say about a third, about 33%, well, because I'm, that's kind of the long-term average. I'm actually going to say 100%. There's a 100% chance of a bear market occurring at some point in the future. Oh, sure. Now. So I didn't quantify the next okay. while, but the next okay. while being some point in the future. Yeah, right on. Now, the thing to keep in mind, and it's one of the things that we always have to remind people, is that in all bear markets, the losses that we experienced in our stock portfolios have been erased in subsequent bull markets. And I guess that's why they're called cycles. As long as you stayed invested. As long as you stayed invested. That's right. Yeah, because there have been times when we're in a bear market or a sell-off and we get calls and somebody might say something like, I just need to get out. I want to wait till things get better and get back in. And we have to remind them that, wait a minute, you want to sell out now because you're worried and you want to buy back in later when prices are more expensive. Exactly. Which is not what you want to do in the cycle. That's not generally a good strategy. It's important to keep in mind that bear markets end, the cycle continues, and they tend to, at least always have in the past, taken care of any losses that occurred during the bear market. Now, there's also cycles within asset classes. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about factors of return, and we discussed that certain types of stocks, say value stocks or stocks that are trading at lower relative prices to the markets, those value stocks have higher expected returns over the long run than do growth stocks. But does that happen every year? Colin? Well, no, it's just another version of a cycle. It's right? just another cycle. And well, actually, and we've had some calls just this, I don't know, up until last year, because we've talked about having a value tilt in equities or stock yes. market investing. And I've had calls over the last few years that say, well, look, are we really doing this because value has been out of favor to growth for the last, I don't know, 10 years. Then what happened? Total turnaround in November. Yeah. So I had somebody call me after November and they said, well, so growth is still outperforming value, right? And I said, well, actually, no, you're wrong. Value is outperforming growth like we expected in a cycle. That's right. Even when you look back and say, okay, well, value has underperformed growth for the last 10 years, it's mainly because of the incredible divergence in performance of value versus growth over the last few years in particular. And most importantly, what happened during the pandemic year where anything growth, technology, new techniques, new technologies, things like that really caught favor. As cycles, and this is a little aside, I was just looking at the performance of some asset classes. I would have expected during a global economic shutdown, when there's literally millions of people that lose their job, U.S. unemployment went from somewhere around 3.5% to 15% in March of 2020. And there was all this debate about, well, what will happen to all that commercial space that companies rent? I looked at the asset class returns of corporate real estate in the U.S. last year. It's actually done really well, which is counterintuitive. Everything that happened last year, in my view, is counterintuitive. And again, in, in looking back, you can say, okay, well, I get it. There was a lot of new technologies. There was vaccine developments, mRNA types of vaccines. There was work from home, the need for cloud computing, remote access, things like that. You can look back and say, okay, I get it. I understand why all that happened. But 
again, the issue is not looking back. The issue is looking forward. And I don't think there was too many people that were expecting a massive stock market rally during the year that not only were there things like the global pandemic going on and a global economic shutdown, but there was race riots in the U.S. and all sorts of oh, storming of the capital, nasty business going on for yeah, sure. So yeah. listen, cycles are a fact of life and in investing. And we've discussed before, really difficult to time and really difficult to act on. So just understanding cycles and having a portfolio that's structured to withstand them is really the recipe for being able to live with them and just not have your hairline suffer what happened to mine. Okay, last thing we want to talk about are dividends. Can I take this one? Oh, please do. Okay, I'm going to take it from another form here. I wish you would. Okay, listen, there's many themes out there when it comes to investing in the stock market, as you point out, one of them being dividends. And these are kind of things we're talking about. Cycles, headlines, dividends. But what about dividends? I mean, there's people that tell us the importance of dividends and getting paid to wait, but to wait for a stock price to go up and collect income in the meantime is just a theme, wouldn't you say, Greg? I think so, yeah. Because you don't actually have a higher expected rate of return by focusing on dividend-paying stocks, regardless of what pundits tell you you do. Because if you have two companies and one of them pays dividends and one doesn't and they're in the same space, isn't the company that doesn't pay the dividend, don't they have a higher expected stock price, Greg? Sure they do. Right, because they're not distributing any of their money to shareholders. They're keeping it in retained earnings and investing in their business. I was just going to say, what exactly is a dividend? A dividend is just cash that the company has earned. They've paid tax on their earnings. And what they're doing is they're just taking a chunk of their after-tax profits and they're paying it back to their shareholders. So in fact, whatever the value of the dividend is has to reduce the share value by that exact amount. Exactly that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's counterintuitive to what is taught. I know all current university students who are studying finance, although they're probably studying remotely this last year, but when they're studying finance, they study things like dividends and the dividend discount model, a very common model, but models are not reality. And Greg, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say something might get us in a little bit of hot water. Do it. The dividend discount model is bunk. (gasps) It is because in the real world, there are things that happen that no one sees coming, like perhaps a global credit crisis or a global pandemic and economic shutdown. Because Greg, I don't ever seem to recall in my university corporate finance studies, reading about the expected stock price of either a dividend-paying company or a non-dividend-paying company during a global economic shutdown. Right on. There's no literature around that. Because the dividend discount model assumes things like dividends are constant or you know the growth rate of the dividend, so you factor it into the expected stock price. But I'm just going to say it. It's bunk. All right. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, that's right. Dividends actually remind me of milk commercials. This idea that if you drink three glasses of milk a day, you get the right amount of calcium for your body. But you know who was producing those milk commercials, those drink milk commercials, right, Greg? Yeah, absolutely. Who was it? I would think it was the milk companies. Yeah, dairy producers. right on. So of course they're telling you to drink three glasses of milk and putting a spin on it like that's how you get calcium. But the reality is that if you eat a well-balanced diet, and I know this from trying to do that myself, you get all kinds of calcium and all kinds of other foods. And you don't actually have to focus on milk just to get calcium. So how does this relate to investing? You don't need to focus on dividends as an investment theme. You just need to be invested 
And you get dividends as a byproduct of being invested. Sure. In any well-diversified portfolio, there's going to be a bunch of dividend-paying companies, but there's also going to be a bunch of other companies which are also good, also generating lots of cash flow and profits for the shareholders. Right Right on. on. Well, listen, I mean, you've dispelled one of the myths already because there's a lot of myths around dividend investing. The first one being dividends are free income. And as we've just discussed, they're not free. It's your own money. Well, not even that. So the company pays tax on the money and then they pay you a dividend. Then you have to claim the dividend on your tax return. Correct. And pay tax on it as well. That doesn't sound like free. It's not free. Now, listen, I mean, it's true that dividends do attract a better tax rate than interest, let's say. And so you can see how they would appeal to people. But in a sense, you're just getting your own money back anyway. So maybe there's even a better way to get your own money back and pay even less tax than you would on a dividend. How would you do that? Well, the way to do that is to basically, if you have a company, let's say you've got an equivalent company that doesn't pay a dividend. If you just sold off 4% of that company's stock every year, then basically what you'd be doing is you'd be getting a portion of your own money back, which is the same as a dividend. But the tax on that would only be any amount of capital gain that would have been realized on that 4% of the position that you've sold. So let's imagine that the stock went up 10% last year and you sell 4% of it. Well, then your tax is actually just one-tenth of 4% or 0.4% compared to somebody who's paying tax on the entire 4% dividend. So lower taxes. So there are other ways to take income or what I should say is cash flow without having to have a dividend. What are some other myths? Well, some of the other myths are that dividend companies are just better investments because they've got a track record. Maybe they've been paying dividends. Many companies have been paying dividends for a hundred years or more. And so those are seen as maybe being better companies or better investments. Well, you hear about blue chip dividend paying stocks. Right on. And it may or may not be true. Are you investing for returns or is your goal to have what you see as the best companies in the world in your portfolio? For me, I'd like to focus on returns. Now, listen, every well-diversified portfolio is going to have a bunch of those names in the portfolio, but they're also going to have a bunch of other stocks, which maybe are small companies, maybe they're value companies. And by the way, many dividend stocks are value-oriented companies. So focusing on those as being better investments, I think, is a fallacy. I think they're part of a well-diversified portfolio. One other myth that's kind of a nasty one are that dividend stocks are like bonds. They're not like bonds at all. Not at all. You heard it here. Anybody that tells you that dividend-paying stocks have the same risk characteristics as bonds just doesn't know what they're talking about. Exactly. They're stocks. They're exposed to all of the risk that comes with being in equity investments. And if you're looking for stable and secure income with safety of your principal, dividend stocks are not the way to do it. Greg, are we recommending people avoid bonds and instead invest just in dividend-paying stocks? Absolutely not, Colin. No, that'd be wrong. Yeah, exactly. And the last thing is that the myth is that you can build a well-diversified portfolio by specifically selecting dividend stocks. And I think that's a bit of a fallacy as well. The reason being is that dividend stocks tend to be focused in a few key sectors. For example, utilities, pipelines, real estate, some oil and gas stocks. And so if you do invest in companies that pay high dividends, you may end up with some sector concentration, which exposes you to things like interest rate sensitivity, because we know that certain sectors like utilities, pipelines, real estate are all quite sensitive to rising interest rates. And if interest rates go up, then all of those sectors are going to kind of behave the same. 
and not in a good way. And so by focusing solely on dividend stocks, you've got this concentration risk, you're concentrating in a sector. If you're doing it strictly for tax purposes, because the dividend tax credit in Canada gives you a better after-tax return, then you're going to end up with geographic concentration because you're really focusing on Canada, which, as you know from previous podcasts, is about 3% of the world stock market. So you're going to focus all your efforts on 3% of the world. Exactly. I think the bottom line is that one of the issues with dividends is that people are confused between what they define as their need for income, and it's really their need for cash flow. So when you're talking about planning for retirement or funding your retirement, it's really cash flow that people need. But because they use the term income, it implies that, well, your investments have to provide all of that cash flow through paying out interest or dividends. And that's not true. We look at total return. So in a well-diversified portfolio, it's going to give you a total return. We hope in the 5 6% range, but who knows, whatever it is. But that's some combination of interest income, dividends, capital gains. And it's the total return that we need to worry about. And the cash flow can be created in a number of different ways. So there you go. Quick and dirty on dividends. And that's all I got for you. Quick and dirty. I like it. Well, as we're wrapping up the summer here in this summer series, maybe we should just spend two minutes and go through the themes that we talked about for our back to basics. So Episode one, we talked about asset allocation and diversification, the importance of those things. And I think we agree those are the things you have to get right first. Exactly. Episode two, we talked about stock picking and market timing. And how well does that work? Not very well. It can, for most but people. It doesn't usually work very That's well. Right. Episode three, we talked about fees, expenses, and taxes. Is that right? I think we talked about factors of return. Oh, right. Factors of return. See, that's why I asked you with a question go. mark. Factors of return and the importance of having something like a small cap value tilt in your equities. Sure. And understanding the factors of return in fixed income and equities. Episode four, we talked about the silent killers or your silent partners, however you want to call it. Fees, expenses, and taxes. And this last episode, we talked about headlines, cycles, and dividends. Oh, we covered a lot there. That's what wraps it up. Maybe there's no reason to record any more episodes. We just have to get everybody to listen to this one. I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> easy. <laughs> ah, but we'll record more anyway because it's fun. It is fun. Well, then we'll catch everybody on the next episode when we'll be talking about something else. Thanks for joining us. Yep, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy.
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.